So I'm reading from chapter 13, verse 17, to the end of chapter 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hatheroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. 
I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Then I will gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved, in, moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. Sorry, dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Let us pray and then uh, work through this passage. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this time we share today as your people, and we thank you that we can think about your word uh, and we pray that you'd help us uh, to be challenged by it and to be people who have a, a desire to serve you and love you uh, in response to what we hear from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, I've put in the introduction, longing for a better place. That's the topic I want to start with. The idea of longing for a better place, it's probably an idea that we can all really relate to. Uh, whether you've been keen to move into a new house, start a new job, perhaps pay off a bill or even go on a holiday, uh, we can probably all think of plenty of situations where we long to leave an unacceptable situation for something much better, if you think about those moments in your life. 
Well, this idea is something that um, people sing about as well. There's a 1980s singer called Tracy Chapman who song, sang a song called Fast Car. And in that song, she started to raise this idea about uh, leaving a situation and finding a better one. She sings, you got a fast car. I got a plan to get us out of here. I've been working at the convenience store. Managed to save just a little bit of money. Won't have to drive too far. Just cross the border and into the city. You and I can both get jobs and finally see what it means to be living. You got a fast car. Is it fast enough so we can fly away? We're going to make a decision. Leave tonight or live and die this way. I'm not going to sing the chorus. Just relax. It's okay. But in that song, we see that there's a desire, a desire to leave immediately. Tonight, in fact, she's saying. So that they can put into action this plan to get some jobs, to get out of poverty, so they can finally see what it means to be living, to belong and to be someone. Be someone. Be someone. <laughs> that comes into the chorus. Well, that song became a hit in the 1980s uh, because plenty of people could relate to that idea. Uh, things could be a lot better than their present situation. And it seems that that desire is universal uh, and timeless, which is my way of segueing back into Exodus now. It's a, it's a timeless desire. And in Exodus chapter three, 13, it's probably the desire, or has been the desire, of the Israelites. For some time they've been looking to get out of slavery, that unbearable situation, as they've lived in slavery under Pharaoh. And here in chapter 13, they finally get a break. They finally start to see what it means to be living. Here's their big chance. Now, the topic of this talk is that God saves. And that's the topic of this section of Scripture. And I'm going to say a couple of things about God saving. The first one is in point one of the outline. And that's God saves by means of his presence. In verse 17 of chapter 13, we read the words, finally read the words, when Pharaoh let the people go. That's been a, a current a refrain throughout Exodus, you know. Let my people go. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. You know that one too. Well, this is a big moment because we, we finally see that Pharaoh's letting the people go. It's not uh, random that that word's put down like that. And God takes them out in a remarkable way. He does it by means of his presence. We see that in verse 21 and 22 where the Lord guides them out in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, we've seen something of God's presence earlier in Exodus, haven't we, with respect to the burning bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed up, and God's presence is there as he speaks to Moses. But this actually, this section about the uh, pillar of cloud by day and fire by night is being... Uh, talked about because we're seeing it's the fulfilment of prophecy that's already happened earlier. Uh, there's a bridge back into Genesis where God's made promises to Abraham at the time when Abraham's doubting. God says, well, I can assure you things are going to work out this way. And I'll, in fact, I'll make a covenant uh, that, to show you that what, if this doesn't happen, uh, what's going to happen to these pieces of the sacrifice is going to happen to me is what God sort of says. We can see this covenant 
in Genesis chapter 15. So if you want to flip back there, you'll, you'll get a handle on what I'm talking about and you'll start to see this idea of the, the cloud and the fire uh, where it's got its roots. So in Genesis chapter 15, God makes the covenant with Abraham that he'd have many descendants and a land and blessing. And we'll pick it up in verse 12. The sacrifice has already been cut. And we're told that in Genesis 15 verse 12, At the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This seems to be the presence of God. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Verse 17 is the key one. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land, etc. Well, did you think it was interesting that there's a, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch that passes between the pieces? Because now we're reading about how God comes in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and he's about to pass through something uh, we read about later in the passage. So we see that God's saving his people and he does so as he's already promised back in Genesis and he does so by his presence leading them out. God leads the people out to the promised land. The second point to note about God's salvation is that God saves in a strange way. We see that in uh, verse 18 and in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 14. In terms of military strategy, sometimes armies have uh, ways to try to keep the upper hand. Sometimes it's by having the high ground and uh, sometimes it's by having an escape route. I'm not much of a military strategist, but I know that the... This way of um, kind of rescuing the Egyptians seems to make it more tricky. We see that instead of leading the people around by the normal trade route up the coast where it's flat, God leads the people back around into the wilderness so that they're hemmed in by the Red Sea. He's, he's really starting to box them in, as we might say uh, when you're bike riding, you get boxed in. Well, these people are being boxed in around the Red Sea. Now, if I could compare this to diving, some dives have a, a, are an easy dive and other dives have a degree of difficulty that gets increased where they do a, a triple backward somersault with a pike and into the water. The, the degree of difficulty gets harder to do a dive. Well, here God's increasing the degree of difficulty to save his people. They're now hemmed in around the Red Sea. And so we start to see that God's preparing to save his people, but in a spectacular way. The third point is that God saves his people and as he does so, he shows his glory. Pick it up in 14 verse 4. God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Again, Pharaoh struggles to let the people go, doesn't he? And again, we see that God is going to be seen to be the true king, the one that is sovereign, who's in control. 
and not Pharaoh. And as God rescues his people and shows his glory, this is something that the people have got to look back on when they're in the promised land and remember God's power and glory. We see that idea in Deuteronomy as Moses talks to the people about what God's done. This is what he says in Deuteronomy. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. He says, Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? By testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. And so we see that as God saves his people, he does so to show his power and his glory. That's why he's using these mighty works, mighty acts. The other thing we note is that God saves his people even, even though they start to waver in their trust. That's what Joanne's comment was as she stole my sermon at the start of her Bible reading. She's out here, she can't hear it now. Uh, we, we see that uh, the people start to get rattled, don't they? They can see the Egyptian army coming uh, and they're wondering about God's willingness to save them. We'll pick that up in 14 verse 11 to 15. I've got to take you back into the text so we get the, the weight of the narrative. We've got to get caught up in the story here. Verse uh, 11, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die. What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Well, they start to waver with their trust in God. Even though they've seen ten plagues and he's leading them out, they start to get a bit rattled. But at times we can also waver in our trust too, can't we? At times we can doubt God and his word. And the challenge becomes for us also not to waver, but to continue to look forward to the salvation that we're going to receive as well. Well, as God saves, he actually starts a new beginning. As Israel leaves Egypt and the Egyptians behind, they say goodbye to slavery. As they move out of Egypt, a new day dawns. They become a new nation. And as they become a new nation... It happens in a very spectacular way. I'll pick it up in verse 19. Then the angel of God, who'd been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Well, that's got to be one of the most 
uh, amazing things that we can read in the Bible. Of all the things that are written in the Bible, that is an amazing scene. It's hard to even imagine that, isn't it? To think about walking down a town beach and having a wall of water on either side and walking through with an Egyptian army pursuing. It's hard for us to imagine this kind of thing. It's, it's quite miraculous. But did you notice there's also a pattern that actually goes with this way that Israel is saved and made into a new nation with a new beginning? Well, firstly, in verse 19, the angel of the Lord becomes between the Egyptians and the Israelites and there is a separation of light from darkness. You saw that in verse 19. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side so that neither went near the other all night long. They're saying the light and the dark are separated. And it reminds us of the language of creation. At the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, we read, and God separated the light from the darkness. Did you see what happened as they walked through into the Red Sea? In verse 21, we read, the waters were divided. And it's remarkable that the same idea comes up in the creation account as well. On day two, this is what we read. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So day two, the waters are separated. And furthermore, we see a same sort of pattern emerging. As they walk through to the promised land, to God's rest, they do so on dry ground. Verse 22 and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. And that's exactly what we see happen in the creation account as well. On day three, we're told, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And so the very language of creation is applied to the new creation of Israel as a new nation. And just as the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters at the very beginning creation, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over these people as they're moving out of this wasteland of Egypt to the promised land. And we actually see that idea uh, summarised in Deuteronomy. The idea, this word for hovering, the Spirit hovering at the very start, is only used in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The same word hovering comes up speaking about God being there to take his people out. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. In a desert land he found him. This is God speaking about uh, Israel in Egypt. In a barren and howling waste. That's the same words that are used at the very start, for the earth is formless and void. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers, there's that word, that same word that's used at the very start of the spirit hovering over creation, and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. And then in Exodus chapter 19 we read, God say to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Well, the Spirit of God is there making a new nation. They're leaving slavery behind. It's a new day dawning. And God's there with his presence leading them out. This is what one commentator 
had to say about God being there with his presence before the people. We find that at the Exodus reenactment of creation history, the divine pillar of cloud and fire was present, like the Spirit of God at the beginning, to bring light into the darkness, to divide the waters and make dry land appear in the midst of the deep, and to lead on to the Sabbath in the holy paradise land. God's there by his spirit leading them out and a new day is dawning for them as the creation of a new nation. And we see that as God saves, he does so completely. We'll pick up the reference again back in uh, Exodus at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of the chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. We see that not one of them survived. God saves his people completely from Pharaoh to serve him as, as the new king. Well, as God saves, the people's response to God's salvation is to rejoice and sing. And that's what we start to see in the Song of the Sea. In the Song of the Sea in uh, Exodus 15, one of the striking things is that God comes across as a warrior, as a man of war. And he's depicted as someone who's fighting to save his people with two important results. One, how the other nations handle it, and two, to actually complete the project and deliver his people uh, to his presence, to his sanctuary. We'll pick that up in 15 verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I'm not going to sing this one, by the way. I did sing it in Sunday school, but I won't sing it to you today. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The, Lord, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. Now the results of God's battle on behalf of his people is that the nations who are occupying Palestine at the time, they start to freak out, as the teenagers would say. They start to panic because Israel's coming and God's leading them. We pick that up in verse 13 of chapter 15. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. 
The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. The results of God being a warrior fighting for his people is that the other nations find that hard to cope with because they know he's coming to take the land. But secondly, the results of God being a warrior is that he, as I said earlier, he completes the project and he brings the people to himself to live in his presence. At the centre of the camp, they were to have the tabernacle and then the temple filled with God's glory. In verse 17, we read, You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so God is in the process of bringing his people in to live with him as their God at the centre of their camp and they'll dwell in his presence. Well, the wonderful news is that God has acted in the past to save. We can see from the story we've looked at today that he has saved Israel. And as we read the rest of the Bible, we realise that God has acted to save us. As we survey the plan of God, we learn from the writers of the New Testament to understand the storyline of the Bible in the light of its ending. And that centres on the death and resurrection of Jesus our Lord and Saviour. We're told that the events before in the scriptures are a shadow of the realities to come which are in Christ. God saved his people by means of the exodus through the Red Sea in the past so they might go and dwell in his presence as his people. But our stage of salvation is a little bit different. It's true that God still saves, but the writers of the New Testament remind us that God does it differently. He saves us through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, we learn that Jesus is even better than Moses. Moses might have passed through the Red Sea, which he did. But we're told that Jesus is our high priest in chapters 3 and 4. He is our great high priest and he passes through the very heavens. He dies and rises for our sins and he brings us into the presence of God. And so that's why the writer to the Hebrews wants us to feel the weight of what Jesus has done. He wants us to realise that we can actually approach God, that we do dwell as his people in his presence. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 16, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying we can actually approach God in prayer. Tim's going to lead us in prayer uh, after this sermon. The reason why Tim's going to lead us in prayer after this sermon is because he's done such a good job of his prayer that um, I wanted him to pray it after I've preached it. As Christians, the exodus has happened for us in Christ. On account of his work to redeem us from sin and death and a fallen world. That's what we've been rescued from. 
A misinterpretation at this point would be to think of your boss as Pharaoh and that you somehow need liberation from him. Well, that's not quite the way God wants us to think about our exodus. As God's people, we're moving from one country to another. I've never been to Egypt and we're not being moved from Egypt into Palestine, but we're being moved from a fallen creation into a renewed and restored creation. That's our journey. And Jesus challenges us in this present age to lift our horizons to that new creation. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is still uh, a destination that we're going to. We look forward to inheriting the earth, a renewed earth. And that's going to happen when Jesus returns and takes us to be with him. And it's at that time, that I'll quote Tracy Chapman now, when we'll finally see what it means to be living. That's when we'll finally see what it means to be living, at that time. Well, in application to the salvation event that the Egyptians had in the past, they responded in song. They celebrated and rejoiced in the Lord in singing, and God has saved us as well in Christ in the past, and we still look forward to salvation in the future. And we're encouraged to be people of song as well. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've been saved as well and we look forward to the completeness of that salvation. We're going to spend some time now in prayer. Tim, if you'd be willing to come down and then I'll let the music crew lead us in a time of song and we'll sing like the Israelites. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Peter.